Well, good morning. This is not the way it should be. And uh, praise God next Sunday, it's not going to be like this. Uh, We're so grateful for the technology that enables us to come into your homes right where you're at. But uh, I've missed seeing a lot of you for a long time now. And so I'm eager to to get back together and say hello face to face. And uh, so I would echo Brandon's prayer in the name of Jesus. May the COVID virus vanish from Keystone. I want you to find your Bibles, the book of Romans chapter 8, and um, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit this morning, and as well as next Sunday, and a strange title probably for this sermon, question, which bicycle, which bike? So I have two bicycles here this morning. Uh, this is mine over here. Um, anybody knows me knows I like orange. And I was exploring the bike shop one day. I was planning to get a new bike in the next year or so. Rode one like this, only it was dark green. Came back, said, I got to get me one of those. And then they made the mistake of saying, I think it's available in orange. And I was toast. So just a regular old bike. You pedal it if you want to get somewhere. So the bike doesn't do any work for you except when you're going down the hill. I have to pedal and pedal and pedal. Now there's a different kind of bike over here. This is an e-bike, electric bike. It's uh, about five times as heavy as my bike. And uh, the nice thing about this bike is when you start riding it, all of a sudden the motor kicks in and it takes off and does the work for you. And then you keep riding at some point, you pedal a little bit more and it takes off again. So this is this is, I don't know, I, I'm tempted to say this is for you if you're lazy, but I won't do that. I was uh, riding my bike up the street one day, um, and somebody came flying by me in another bicycle, and a 16, 17-year-old kid turned around, looked back at me, and he says, you're not going to get there very fast on that. And he had an e-bike. He was going about 30. And I called out, yeah, but I'll get the exercise. And so we want to contrast those two bikes this morning when we think about the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, both Jesus and his apostles, when they talked about the Holy Spirit to people, they talked in such a way that they thought that people should be eagerly desirous of having the Holy Spirit. In Luke 11, when Jesus talked about fathers giving their sons good gifts, you know, if your son asks you for an egg, would you give him a scorpion? Of course not. And he says, in the same way, your, your father um, is ready to give you, you good gifts as well. You, you're evil, you're sinful fathers, and you give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly father give you? And then he says, give you the Holy Spirit. Ask him. And then in the <clears throat> Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, when the people were convicted after that sermon and asked what should they do, Peter responds, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not a lot of explanation. This is a gift. And when you get a gift, it's something usually you're excited about. It's something you, you long for. It's something you're, you're eager to use and enjoy. 
And it's fascinating that Jesus spoke so much about this as a gift. The apostles spoke about this as a gift. And yet I wonder today how many of us who follow Jesus Christ, who are born again by the Spirit of God, hold to the Holy Spirit as being anything more than simply a doctrine to be believed. Or perhaps preoccupied with the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives. We might think 1 Corinthians uh, 12 Uh, 13, 14 most important verses in the Bible on the Holy Spirit because they talk about the gifts that he gives us. But the most important thing that we have to deal with in this life is not spiritual gifts. The most important thing that we face as a threat day in and day out, and it's not only a threat, it's the only threat that can kill you forever, sin. In this passage, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit taking on sin. And to me, this is the most important passage on the Holy Spirit in the Bible because sin is still yours and my greatest threat. Beginning of verse 1. <clears throat> so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So, God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. So he's talking about Christians, these first four verses. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you, you Christians, you believers, you followers of Jesus, you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same spirit living within you. Join me in prayer. Father, we're grateful for the declaration in these verses that sin in the life of the believer is defeated. We're no longer handcuffed or chained to its powers. We have a greater power. That doesn't mean we don't dabble in sin. Even though the sin nature has been crucified in us, it has not been obliterated from us. Even though it's been put to death, 
it still hangs around the perimeters of our lives begging for attention. That's why we need spirit. We worship you because you came up with a gospel that would liberate sinners from the sin that controlled them. That you came up with a gospel that, that could do what we could not do through the sacrifice of your own son. You came up with a gospel that would pr- provide us not only with the wisdom of Christ, but actually Christ himself living in us, the person of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that this morning, uh, unbelievers might hear about themselves in these verses five through eight. They might see the bleakness of it, and they might say, I want to be free from the power of sin. That there might be some today who say yes to Jesus. And that for those of us who know Christ, as we read these verses and, and hear the hope in them because of the Holy Spirit, may we give thanks double measure for the grace that's been poured out upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first couple of verses are such a glorious reminder for those of us who are in Christ that with Jesus, we get these gifts. With Jesus, we get these gifts. Verse 1, God cancels his condemnation of the believer in Christ. God cancels his condemnation of the believer in Christ. Ephesians 2 says that all of us were in the same boat at one point. We were all under God's wrath. We were all enemies. John 3, 36, it says that anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. That's a description of Christians, believers. And then the converse, anyone who doesn't obey the Son, he's not talking about individual sins, but rather doesn't uh, put faith in the Son, who doesn't obey the Son, will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment, under His wrath. And so, in Christ, all of that's canceled. His condemnation, gone forever. Not gone until we commit some really heinous sin. Gone forever. And then secondly, verse 2, that God immunizes the believer against the power of sin a power which kills you forever. God immunizes the believer against the power of sin that is a power that kills you forever. Listen, if you're a soldier and you're in combat, battle, and guns are blazing away at you, and you take one in the heart, that's not a death that kills you forever. If you die of lung cancer, if you die of pancreatic cancer, that's not a death that kills you forever because you're going to wake up After you've died, you're going to wake up into an eternity, and it's only sin that can kill you forever. In Christ, God has immunized the believer. Verse 3 says that the law of Moses was unable to save us, and so Jesus did what the law could not do. Now, it's almost a sin to tear this text away from Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 7. Because it's one section, it's tied deeply together. Romans chapter 6 talks about the freedom uh, from sin that has taken place in Christ. And Romans chapter 7 contrasts the supposed power of the law to get us to obey God 
versus um, the freedom that we have in Christ to obey God. And our, our precious Jewish friends and the ones that Jesus talked with when He was here on earth were convinced that God had given the law to make them behave so that their behavior might make them right with God. The problem is, as Paul points out in Romans 7, is that the law couldn't do that. All the law could do is tell you, don't do this, you shouldn't do this, and you should do this. But when people tried to obey that, they found out many times they couldn't do that. Why? Because all the law did was tell us what we do wrong. First, uh, just across the page, Romans 5, verse 20, God's law, the law of Moses, was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. You look at the law, Ten Commandments, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do make sure you do this. I don't know about you, but I've broken them a few times. No power in the Ten Commandments to get you to obey the Ten Commandments. And this is why the Pharisees were so frustrated when Jesus shows up and says, you know, it, actually at the end of the day, it's not this law that's going to save you. you. You've kept the law in these areas, but you're failing in these areas. And so the Pharisees' response was, try harder. The law of Moses was unable to save because of the weakness of our sinful nature. In other words, no power in, in our being. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. What a wonderful passage to read today when we're going to celebrate communion. How in the body of Christ, he has liberated us from what we could not liberate ourselves from. Let me Let me insert this here. If you're a Christian, and you think back to becoming a Christian, what's the emphasis on? Who's the emphasis on? Is it you or is it God? Is it what you did or is it what God did? It's interesting. Almost every time I talk with someone who's going to be baptized and I ask them to tell me about their faith, They always start with who they were before Christ, and then they talk about who they were after Christ. And it's not infrequent that I have to say, what about God? Because the glory of the gospel is that God chases us down. The Bible says that he chose us before we were ever interested in him. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit convicted us of guilt in regard to our sin, righteousness, and judgment, John 16, long before we were interested in him. Later on in this chapter, Romans chapter 8, it says that God called us to Christ before we were a follower of Christ. Titus 3, 4, and 5 says that God saved us not on the basis of works that we had done in righteousness. He saved us according to his mercy by regeneration. Generation means to to be alive. Regeneration is to make alive again. Ephesians 2 says we're dead in our transgressions and sins, so we can't, we're too dead to respond to Christ. So in a split second before we said yes to Jesus, God regenerated us. He he brought us to life so that we could say yes to Jesus. 
I mean, you think about that. God, when you hear the words, God so loved the world, and you bring it down personal, God so loved Keith, he did all this stuff before I was ever interested in it. And because of that, we know that someone who is truly born again, remember we talked last week about fraudulent Christians? We know someone who is truly born again, that is a supernatural transaction that takes place. It's initiated and it's consummated by God himself. Supernatural transaction so that something takes place that will never be changed in us. And one of the things that Paul's driving home in this is that now the Holy Spirit lives in every believer. If you can put your hand up at home and say, I'm a, I'm a child of God, you have the Holy Spirit. You put your hand up and say, I said yes to Jesus, I put my faith in him, you have the Holy Spirit within you. As J.D. Greer loves to say in his book on the Holy Spirit, Jesus continued, by the way, best book I've ever read on the Holy Spirit. He said, the Jesus inside you is better than the Jesus beside you. The disciples were distraught when Jesus said, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm, and I need to leave so that the Holy Spirit can come. And they weren't excited about that. They wanted Jesus right there beside them. He's like, no, no, no. When I go, the Holy Spirit will come and he will fill all of you. So you, 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 you know Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit and I have the Holy Spirit. Not beside me, inside me. And it's a result of this supernatural transaction. Just a footnote. Write down 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Because that passage is talking about the Spirit changing us more and more into the likeness of Christ. And he says, and the Lord is the Spirit. In other words, Jesus lives in you in the person of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The Holy Spirit lives in me. Amazing to think about. Now, what good does he do? Well, let's talk about what if he's not present. Without Jesus, you are defenseless and doomed to death. So heading for those first four verses, with Jesus we get these gifts. Romans 8, 5 to 8, without Jesus, if you're not a Christian, this applies to you. Without Jesus, you're defenseless and doomed to death. Why? Because you are under the power of sin yet. You're still under the power of sin. The bleak words here, verse 6. Letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. Again, he's not talking just about physical death. He's not talking about dying from cancer and a head-on car collision. He's talking about the sin that kills you forever. Letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. One of the things that is so um, uh, hard to see at the time when we're being tempted by sin is how awful sin is going to, how awful the road is that sin's going to take us down. Genesis 3, classic example. Oh, no, no, no. You can eat that fruit. It's delicious. 
it's going to taste good, you're going to get smart. Sin lies. It paints a picture of wonder and pleasures and satisfactions that eventually unravel because sin lies. You know, some sins, uh, at least I found this out in my own life, some sins we tend to back into. That is, we, um, we find ourselves there. We didn't really pursue sin. We backed into it. Um, and then we just don't bother fighting it. Any of you in the thick of sinning right now, this season of your life, and something you backed into? You didn't set out to go there. You didn't mean to end up here, but you're there, not really fighting. Might be trashing people behind their back. That's just a, it's just a pattern. It developed over time, over years. Maybe you saw it in your parents. You didn't set out to trash people behind their back. It just, you find yourself there. Fits of anger. Most people who are angry have been angry a very long time. They never set out to be an angry person. But it's now in their mind, their identity. It's who I am. And that's, I can't really fight it. It's part of my personality. Drunkenness. Most people don't set out to become alcoholics. They drink socially to be accepted, to be part of the group that they're with. Over time, they discover that alcohol numbs stress and pain. They take more of it to numb the stress and pain. All of a sudden, they're down the road several years. I'm like, how did I get here? We touched on last week obscene language, demeaning language, coarse language. I shared, excuse me, my own track record from back probably when I was 12 years old, developed a filthy mouth because of the people I was around. Some sins we back into, we just don't bother fighting them. Other sins we jump into. We actually pursue them. We might disobey God. God says, I want you to do this. Jonah comes to mind. I want you to do this, Jonah. I want you to go to Nineveh. I'm catching a boat the other direction. The abuse of other people. I've watched this in my lifetime in some family situations. And in most cases, the abusers, they don't see themselves as abusers. They see themselves as usually men trying to be in charge, trying to be in charge of their families, trying to make sure the worst doesn't happen. They like the respect abuse gains for them. Maybe it's worshiping golden calves. Something other than God is my focus or something in addition to him. It might be money. Remember last week we talked about the greed uh, that Paul described as idolatry. It might be things like sports or your boat, the likes you accumulate on social media, your achievements, your children's achievements. It might be a diet of pornography. That's an easy one. 
It might be drugs. When I read verse 6, so letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, I thought, wow. What a picture of drug addiction. And the more I thought about it, and I looked up some testimonies of people who were drug addicts, I thought, wow, what a picture drug addiction is of the bondage of sin. Ashley was a heroin addict in the suburbs of Minneapolis. She said, if I could stop, I wouldn't have gone so far as dropping out of school, quitting my job, being sick every day. It's a horrible life to live. I'm really desperate for treatment. I've been wanting to quit for so long now. I now realize I can't do it on my own. You see, this is the problem with the unbeliever in verses 5 through 8. They are on their own. This thing called sin that can kill them forever is what they're up against. And they have no resources other than their own self-will and resolve and self-discipline to fight it. And that's never going to win. These verses are a picture of the unbeliever. But I think Paul has a subtle warning He does this a couple times in his epistles. There's like a subtle warning behind the description of the unbeliever. A shadow warning, if you will, for the believer. Because I would guess that all of us remember times when we forgot who we were in Christ. When we forgot the power that we have in us to fight sin. And we tried to do it on our own. And it felt like death. Last couple of verses. With Jesus, you're armed for life. So you have this glorious third person of the Trinity living within you. What do you do with him? Remember, the greatest threat to anyone is sin which can kill you forever. What do we do with the Holy Spirit? Well, verse 9, you are not controlled. Now he's talking to the believer. You are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit. If you have the Spirit of God living in you, if you're a Christian, remember, those who don't have the Spirit living in them do not belong to him at all. And Christ lives within you, Christian, so even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit gives you life, not because you've executed obedience perfectly, but because you have been made right with God. And the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, and just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your immortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. In other words, he's, he's giving life now. Not just eternal life, but giving life now. As well as future life. You are armed. As having the Holy Spirit within you, you are, are armed, Christian. 
The scariest weapon in the U.S. arsenal right now is called a B-83. It's a thermonuclear uh, gravity-armed bomb. It can be dropped by an Air Force bomber. Its yield is 1.2 megaton. And it has 80 times the destructive power of the one that landed on Hiroshima at the end of World War II. And can you imagine going to war with something like that in your arsenal and your enemy has IEDs and that's it? The Holy Spirit within you, believer, makes this bomb look like a 4th of, the, 4th of July sparkler. He is God. He has all the power of God, limitless power. There's nothing that you and he cannot take on. The question is, to what end? What are the opponents? What's the opposition? What is he, is the spirit simply living in you, in me, to stake out what's his? Is he there just so that we can brag he's in us, he's not in you? Are we peddling furiously against sin in our lives? I mean, when, when you find yourself neck deep in sin, what do you do? It's the first thing you do. What's the first instinct you have? And I know I've been in those situations where I'm busy on that bike. All my own resources coming to bear, fighting sin. F.F. Bruce says in his commentary on Romans, so long as they, meaning Christians, so long as they endeavor to rely on their own resources, they fight a losing battle. I don't know any of us who like to be weak, but the Holy Spirit is attracted to weakness. The Holy Spirit is attracted to weakness. God's work in and through your life is triggered by the recognition and the admission that I cannot do this on my own. The great Hudson Taylor, missionary to China, founder of China Inland Mission 150 years ago, says God uses men who are weak and feeble enough to lean on him. God uses men and women who are weak and feeble enough to lean on him. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit is not something simply to be believed. He is to be pursued. Just imagine that you had 150 miles to cover and there was some crisis at stake. And let's say you didn't have access to a plane, you didn't have access to a car, not even a pickup truck. You had access to one of two bikes. And you needed to cover 150 miles in a single day. Would you opt to the one that's all you? Or the one that has far superior power than you do? It's going to get you there much faster 
and you're going to be far less exhausted when you get there. So the question is, how do we access the magnificent, limitless power of the Holy Spirit within us to fight sin? To fight something that's going to be present in our lives from now until the day God takes us home to glory. So we better know how to take it on. Prayer is how we access the Spirit's power to defeat sin. We could say that about any aspect of Christian living. Prayer is how we access the Spirit's power. I want to take you a a, a little survey, starting with Acts chapter chapter 1. I want to show you something about the results of prayer. So Jesus said in Acts 1, verse 8, right before he went back to glory, told his disciples, oops, this is John, not Acts. Told his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Actually, go back to the book of Luke and Jesus said, don't go anywhere until you get the Spirit. It's necessary. You're going to need him. Uh, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. We could rightly put it. And after you receive the power of the Holy Spirit, then you are able to be my witnesses. And of course, we see Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people get saved. Chapter 2, verse 42. All the believers devoted, so these 3,120 or so uh, Christians, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, to fellowship, to sharing them in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And to what? Prayer. A community is being established. You have to understand this is a community that's anticipating Jesus is going to come back like in a matter of weeks, maybe months. So they're not working. They're getting together every day. And these are the kinds of things they're doing. And they're devoting themselves to this, 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 and to prayer. Drop down to verse 47. All the while praising God, enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. In other words, prayer, prayer, people are coming to Christ. Wait on the Holy Spirit and then go out into the world and proclaim Jesus Christ. Prayer, people get saved. Prayer, people get saved. Chapter 4, the saga continues, verse 29. And now, O Lord, they're praying, and now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after this prayer, the meeting place shook, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then, as a result, they preached the word of God with boldness. So we see this in the early church, prayer, power of the Holy Spirit ignited, people come to faith in Christ. Paul's ministry, same way. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning of verse 18, 
Paul says, pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion, pray in the Spirit, meaning uh, pray with a mind to the Spirit's desires, not just your desires. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. And, And pray for me too. Ask God to give me the right words so I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan so that the good news Uh, That the good news is for Jews and Gentiles alike. I'm in chains now, still preaching this message as God's ambassadors. So pray that I will keep on speaking boldly for him as I should. And then the response of that, 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 2. You know how badly we had been treated in Philippi just before we came to you and how much we suffered there. And yet our God gave us the courage to declare It's good news to you boldly in spite of great opposition. Look for the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Declare the gospel boldly to the ends of the earth. Pray. And there will be results. Here's my point. If God uses prayers to reach lost people for Jesus Christ, to make the word effective, to make the proclamation effective, to make hearts pliable, then surely he can do the same thing. Surely he will do the same thing when we enlist the Holy Spirit through prayer to help us in our fight against sin. Not by trying to beat sin by white-knuckled self-discipline. Like the e-bike, you still have a role to pray, but that role is not just self-discipline. That role is prayer. And watch the Holy Spirit go to work. I think it was on the eve of my wedding, or maybe two days before. uh, My best man and I were down in the streets of Coatesville. I have no idea why. He was uh, in the Air Force and had come home for the best part of a week for our wedding. Uh, I was a young... um, wet behind the ears guy. I was 19 years old, had no business getting married, let alone doing, being on the streets of Coatesville. Um, my best man had been around the block a few times. He was older than I was, been in the, been in the uh, Air Force for a couple of years at that point, a year and a half perhaps. It's getting dark. We're in an inner city and a man comes up to us and he starts to talk to us about, I don't know if he wanted money or I think he wanted money, something like that. And I stopped and started to talk with him, engage him. And all of a sudden, my neck snapped and I wasn't in front of this guy anymore. Paul grabbed my shirt or my coat by the shoulder and yanked me down the street. And I didn't know what happened. He goes, you don't ever stop. You don't ever stop in a street like that when somebody approaches you, especially at night. I didn't know any better. I didn't have the smarts. I didn't have the power. But somebody else did. And the same is true for you and you and you. If you know Christ, because you have the Holy Spirit in you, who's far stronger than Paul was, far more invested in God's will than Paul was.
Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Father, we're so grateful for the power that we have as believers in us. We confess sometimes, sometimes we forget he's there. Eager to be tapped on the shoulder and say, please help. I can't pull this off. I can't defeat this. And we pray that as our years go by, that the Holy Spirit would become a greater and greater presence in our lives in the sense that we recognize he's there, recognize that he is you there. His power is your power. His capabilities are yours. And that really we find that in our weaknesses, you are made far stronger than we ever imagined. We love you and are so grateful for the Lord Jesus. Because of him, we have the Holy Spirit.